You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to Stagecraft, Variety's theater podcast, bringing you backstage and behind the scenes with stars, creators, industry leaders, and puppet masters on Broadway and beyond. I'm Gordon Cox. On this episode of Stagecraft, I'll be talking to three of the artists behind Life of Pi. Maybe you've read the Booker Prize-winning novel or seen the Oscar-winning film about a young man's 227-day odyssey adrift on a lifeboat with a Bengal tiger. When a new stage adaptation opened on the West End in London in 2021, it made a big splash winning five Olivier Awards, including Best Play. Now, Life of Pi has come to Broadway where audiences in New York can marvel at how a team of human actors and puppeteers bring to life a zebra, a hyena, an orangutan, and, of course, a ferocious Bengal tiger with the unlikely name of Richard Parker. Fresh off the Broadway production's opening night last week, three members of the creative team are in the virtual studio with me to reveal how the show's magic is made. Here's playwright Lolita Chakrabarty, puppet designer and movement director Finn Caldwell, and puppeteer Fred Davis. Hi, Lolita, Fred, and Finn. Thanks for joining me. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having us. Yeah. I wonder if we could start out just talking about the origin of the piece. Lolita, let's start with you. How did the idea of adapting Life of Pi for the stage come to you? Was it brought to you, um, or was it something that came to you uh, as a creative idea? Um, Yes, it was brought to me. So the producer, Simon Friend, in England uh, had the rights for the book, Uh, and uh, asked if I'd be interested in doing it. And I'd loved the book when I read it in 2002. Um, Mm. uh, So without really thinking through the logic of how I was going to do it, I said yes. Mm. (laughs) Had you seen the movie? I had. I'd seen the movie when it came out in 2012, but I hadn't seen it again, which was quite useful, actually, because I wanted to base the whole thing on the book. Yeah. Do you... What do you remember responding to uh, either your first read in the novel or seeing the movie or then later when you uh, reread it with the idea of adapting for the stage? What I loved about the novel, um, A, it made me laugh and it made me laugh mm. at religion in a in a respectful way. Um, you know, that he was, Jan Martel was talking about um, what should you believe and how do you believe and, and what's the logic of choosing a different religion and the way he dealt with it was really charming and I liked that. Um, but also the wonder of it. It's a it's a book full of questions and no easy answers. Um, and I really loved that. And after reading it, I, I felt 
definitely I had lots of um, uh, well questions, like I said, but I, I didn't feel frustrated by the book, which I think is its charm. You don't come out going, what happened? I don't understand. Uh, you know, you kind of go, oh, there's these two stories. Which one do I choose to believe? Mm. Yeah. Was the, were puppets always part of the concept? Was there ever a version of this where uh, the an animals are played by, you know, humans doing physical work in more traditional kind of costume elements? I think we had an early joke before Finn joined us mm. of actors in, in a onesie, you know, somebody playing a tiger in a onesie. But, <laughs> but, uh, but no, since Finn joined us, there was no thoughts of that at all. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so then as you, as you went back and sort of thought about it for the stage, what do you think makes it a good fit for uh, a theater, a theater piece? I think it requires a lot of imagination. And it's become very clear to me, especially after the pandemic, where we were performing in theatres with no audience, how important the audience is as a character in the play. And actually, if we say we're in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, in the middle of a stage in London or in New York or wherever, Boston, wherever we are, um, the audience believe us. So it's a fantastical story that requires the audience to participate. So I think it's naturally um, it's challenging, that's for sure, but it uh, it lends itself to being theatre. Yeah, yeah. And so how did you, tell us a little bit about how, I guess, do you, how, at what point Lolita and Finn, did you two start talking in terms of what puppets were able to do, what, how you could, like, I just wonder about the interplay of uh, how kind of how you, how the designing of the puppet advanced alongside the sort of development of the script. Um, well, I guess um, Max introduced Lolita and I, because Max had worked with both of us before. Uh, and I think Max and Lolita are already talking about this adaptation. And uh, having done puppets with Max before, he was like, I think we should try it with puppets. And so um, he brought us in. But then Lolita and I got on really well straight away. And uh, mm -hmm. I started making stuff and was reading her stuff. And straight away, we had this brilliant thing where we were able to just talk in the room. And um, we're both very interested in the other's process. And so, we, I, I mean, it's certainly from my point of view, Lolita, it felt very generous and very open. And, and, and we, we went at it. We went at this really, really complicated, difficult thing for quite a long period of time and just really listened to each other. Like, oh, this bit can be told by puppetry. This bit is, is clearly text. Um, this bit is, is projected on the stage. So it was a real collaboration of, of, of where, the, where the narrative is living in any given moment. And I think I hopefully that comes across in the play because it still feels very much like we very fluidly pass the storytelling from character to character and also from visual to the, the textual. Hmm. And Finn, how do you describe the design of these puppets? What kind of inspirations are they drawing on? What kind of traditions? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, so Nick and I, who's not on the call, but Nick Barnes yep. and I designed the puppets. And um, uh, the first thing we do or we think about is what is this sort of big ask of the puppet in the show? What is the what are we being asked to do with this puppet in this show that is different to any other show? And and that's a, a wonderful part of my job because I always get to reinvent and, and, and bring something new. Um, and what the, the biggest ask, and there's many in this show because the tiger has to be kind of what I would call a universal puppet. It can pretty much do anything. It can climb upstairs, it can swim, it can, you know, can do anything. But the big ask that we haven't really definitely done before in theatre in my practice was really making a frightening puppet, a, a mm. puppet that would frighten the, the young actor playing Pi and would frighten the audience for on his behalf. So it had to be um, scary. And that brings us into lots of things. There's the sculpture, of course, you know, big, long teeth, scary eyes, dynamic uh, uh, snarls. 
but there's also the quality of the movement. And so the first thing when I was uh, talked to by um, by Max and Lalita about coming in was talking to Fred, uh, who's one of the best puppeteers I know. And um, we'd, we'd you worked have worked with before, excuse me. Yeah, many, many times. Yeah. And um, in fact, we met, met when Fred was quite young. And uh, But Fred and some of the other great puppeteers working on it were able to give it the speed and the dynamic quality, which made it really feel like, oh yeah, okay, if we let this tiger make contact with the boy, it's gonna kill him. <laughs> and mm -hmm. in a way, solving that big problem for me at the crux of it, like, can we make the puppet scary? Can we make the puppet a real threat to the boy? And then everything else flowed from that in a way. Um, so the aesthetic design mm. came from, um, well, we're thinking about Pi because Lilith has written this amazing framing device where um, Pi is recounting the whole story from the hospital. So I had imagined he's sitting on the boat surrounded by the flotsam and jetsam of the ruined ship. And you have floating bits of driftwood and rope. And in his mind, he's assembling these puppets, mm. this imagination, this memory from what he sees around him. So that was our sort of aesthetic starting point. Mm. We've come a long way and gone around many corners since then, but basically the idea holds true. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I was, it was so interesting because it's very different from something like Warhorse, which I feel like felt more kind of skeletal. Whereas I, I feel like the puppets uh, that are in the show feel there's some there's a sort of striation to them and a kind of musculature to them that feels like a very different. Um, uh, that feels so like I, a very I, different. I was lucky. I was very. I was lucky enough to be in the original production of Warhorse, and I directed yeah. versions of that around the world. But I never. Um designed the puppets. I love those mm. puppets because what they do brilliantly is allow the audience to more actively take part in completing the image. But what we've done in this show is I see it as an evolution. I love Handspring. I hope they won't mind me saying that, but I see mm. it as an evolution of the lessons we learned both on Warhorse, but also on shows that Nick and I have made together, uh, like mm. A Dog's Heart, which we made with Theatre of the Complicite um, as mm. an opera. Yeah. And in that we had a large dog and it was very elastic. So everything mm. was rather than warhorse where things are quite mechanical and blocky and, and mm. fixed. We were using a lot of bungee and we went further with that in this process to make the cat. Because I was looking at cats, I've got a domestic cat, which I absolutely love. And uh, he is like a, an, a giant accordion, really. Mm. So in jumping, he can seem this long. When he sat down, he can seem this long. So um, I was really trying to experiment with the sections of the tiger's body and the bungee that holds it all together so that it can expand and contract. But it has, a, even though its surfaces are hard, there's so many of them and they're all interconnected in such a, an elastic way that like wobbling a, a solid pencil in your hand, I don't know if you've ever done that trick, we can make something solid look uh, elastic and fluid. One of the things that Finn hasn't mentioned is that idea of driftwood. All the pieces of the animals are, uh, are reminiscent of drift, driftwood and so they're not yeah. necessarily finished so although they're beautifully mm -hmm. painted in the colors of the yeah. animal you get that mm -hmm. feeling that they are they've been put together from detritus from the sea it just right. goes mm -hmm. right to the heart of every every bit of the design it's really clever yeah and how do you decide how many puppeteers it takes to create a particular animal there's a standard rule for the type of puppetry, I should let Fred answer that really, but I'll, I'll say the technical <laughs> yeah. talk first. Um, there's a standard rule for um, uh, uh, what we do, which is uh, contact puppetry, so in contact with the thing you're operating. Mm. You might say inspired by Bunraku, people were saying that for quite a long time, that's a Japanese art form where they are physically holding human figures. But I, it's better to call contact puppetry, you're in contact with the thing you're holding. Um, mm. What that means is that you don't want a lot of people around that because the more you have, the more muddy the image becomes. But if you think that any mammal, has six points of contact, one, two, 
three, four, five, <laughs> and the other one, six. Yeah, so he's pointing to, just for listeners, feet. because uh, this is an audio, oh, yeah, so it's, so it's two hands, two arm, feet, and the top the of your head, yeah? And the heart, yeah. Yeah, and that, and that makes three pairs of hands. So if mm. you want any mammal to be fully articulated, you're usually mm. looking at three people. Whenever we can, we'll drop that down to less. People just to thin out the bodies on stage. So the hyena is only one person. The goat, uh, the hyena is two people. The goat is one person. Yeah. But the less people you have on it, the less articulation. Right. I see. Um, and through part of it was uh, trial and error. Um, we started yeah. with three people, uh, three puppeteers uh, yeah. in the show, uh, in the workshops in, in Sheffield. Mm. Uh, and that worked for the length of run that we had uh, in, in Sheffield. It was only a, a few months of, of doing that uh, show seven or eight times a week and we taught several other uh several of the uh acting company how to puppeteer and to you know a very good standard that was uh extraordinary and but by doing that for that length of time we realized that we were going to need more puppeteers to be able to rotate through those animals um to uh, prevent as much injury uh from repetitive strain as possible uh, and to spread the load of that that work because the puppets are beautifully built but also carry a certain amount of weight they're not particularly heavy in themselves mm. but you know if you ask someone to hold a glass of water out uh, with their arm outstretched for one minute it's not so bad but for 15 minutes 20 minutes it's quite difficult mm. um so yeah we've we expanded then to six puppeteers uh, in uh, the London production, which then grew to eight puppeteers by the end of, of that production. And so we've we've started out with eight puppeteers um, in America uh, on, on this uh, this leg of the journey, because we've realized that that is that seems to be the minimum safe amount of puppeteers to have for a long run of of this show with this many puppets and and moving parts and that's interesting i mean that's interesting in two ways first of all fred is skating over the fact there that the three of the three puppeteers fred kate and owine in sheffield did everything mm. i mean they taught it to some of the actors as well but they were doubling up on so many characters that's incredible but also it's really hard as you can imagine to persuade producers to pay for you to double up on the cast they're in the show all the time and it's a real testament to how much Simon Friend and the producers here in America have listened to the art form of puppetry and what's needed mm. to to take on board that there is no way that Fred could do two months of um, eight shows a week or three months. And so, so to accept that this is what, what the show takes. And, and I'm really grateful for that in terms of, especially in terms of just the art form of accepting what's needed to make some really kick-ass puppetry. Yeah. Um, Fred, tell us, Fred, tell the listeners, what, who do you, what is your physical role in the in the show i know you're uh, one part of richard parker the tiger but are there other things and what part of the tiger do you play can you t talk us through a little bit it's kind of what a night in the show is like for you <laughs> yeah of course um so on one we have two or three puppetry tracks that we that we do each of the puppeteers um one heavy track one light track uh one medium track and one light track um, my heavy track, my sort of main track, is I puppeteer the tiger's head um, and, and body. So I'm outside of the tiger puppet with one hand 
on a rod out the back of the tiger's head uh, and one hand on a rod out the back of the tiger's body. Um, and uh, uh, there are two other puppeteers on the tiger, one person inside uh, the tiger puppeteering a bent double uh, holding on to the uh, front front hands. Yeah, uh, front, I would have thought court. that was the heavy one. If I were gonna if I were gonna guess, I would have called that one the heavy one because that that actor, yeah. that performer, spends the whole time bent over like that. Yeah, yeah, I would say that that is the hardest part of the tiger to to mm. do. Having uh, he's had a quick go at it. Haven't you? I've had a, I've had a quick go at it, and I've spent a lot of time around a lot of puppeteers who've done all three parts, and that is the one that is the the most taxing, I believe. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, that's the that's the heart puppeteer, and then the hind puppeteer. Uh, mm. is out also outside of the tiger behind the tiger uh in charge of both back legs via two rods again uh, and the tail which generally like hangs over their their shoulder yeah. um but among like there are many with many puppets but uh i'm part of the hyena uh where i'm mm -hmm. i'm inside the hyena similar to the the tiger uh, heart uh i puppeteer the giraffe uh, at the beginning of the show, some butterflies, mm. some fish, uh, the orangutan's feet, um, mm. zebra. and that's the zebra's head, mm. um, and, uh, and heart, and uh, the turtle. It's a it's a whole a whole menagerie of animals that we've, we've <laughs> yeah. got. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have more with these three artists from Life of Pi right after the break. Hey, it's the new year. Maybe you're like me, and you've spent the holidays eating all of the Christmas cookies and drinking eggnog and coquito every single night for the last month. Perhaps you've set a new fitness goal, or maybe just decided you should eat a vegetable now and then. Get started on your resolutions with Factor. Factor's ready-to-eat meal delivery takes the stress out of meal planning and sets you up for success. Skip the grocery stores, the prep work, and the cooking fatigue, and instead get chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. There are more than 35 meals to choose from each week, including options like keto and calorie smart and vegan and veggie and more, plus more than 55 weekly add-ons, so you'll have a ton of nutritious and flavorful options to kickstart your resolutions. I actually have experience with Factor from even before they took out an ad on this podcast. I got Factor for my mother, who lives alone, and she hates to cook, but she needs to eat. So I know about all the advantages that come with Factor, including there's no more frantic meal prep or rushed unappetizing dinner. Because Factor's two-minute meals can help you fuel up fast with restaurant-quality food delivered right to your door. There's also loads of options beyond lunch and dinner, including smoothies and juices and breakfasts and snacks and anything you might want any time of day. Factor is cheaper and more delicious and usually a lot healthier than takeout. And they're super easy. Their chef-crafted restaurant-quality meals are ready to heat and eat in just two minutes. There's also a lot of flexibility, and this is key because nobody's life looks exactly the same from week to week. With Factor, you can change your order up every week. You can choose between 4 and 18 meals a week, or you can pause or you can reschedule your deliveries anytime. If you're looking for a special occasion meal or you just want to treat yourself, there's Gourmet Plus for when you're looking for fast upscale options done easily. They've also got Keto Meals and those Protein Plus meals to help you stay on track with your New Year's goals. Factor has everything you need for a week of flavorful, nutritious eats. In addition to ready-to-eat meals, they have cold-pressed juices, energy bites, extra protein, veggie sides, and more to keep you energized when life gets busy. Head to factormeals.com stagecraft50 and use code stagecraft50 to get 50% off. 
That's code stagecraft50 at factormeals.com slash stagecraft50 to get 50% off. And now here's more with playwright Lolita Chakrabarty, puppet designer and movement director Finn Caldwell, and puppeteer Fred Davis. Lolita, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about once it became clear to you what the puppets were able to do and how and the ways in which the puppeteers could sort of bring these uh, characters to life and kind of reveal their, you know, emotion, the emotional life of these animals as well. Well, how did that influence how your script developed? Oh, it completely influenced it. I mean, it was because obviously the people in the play speak and the animals speak in a different way. Um, but that doesn't mean they're not communicating. And so every beat of what, uh, how the animals change in the scene has to be incorporated into the writing um, mm. so that the people who are speaking are changed at the end and we can see what the beats are with the animals. So I work really closely with Finn and Fred and with the other puppeteers to just work out what's happening to the animal at this point and, and how do we express that through language and through um, description, I suppose, so that everybody knows what's going on in the scene. I remember we, um, in, in Sheffield, we watched a, uh, I think you showed us a video, Finn, of a pregnant zebra that was attacked by a pack of hyenas. Um, and I remember going to London Zoo to do some research about animals. And uh, they said, oh yeah, ze- a zebra is um, not, not predator, is prey. So that if they're attacked, they just try and hide. Even in sort of, when there's nowhere to hide, they just stop and stand there trying to hide. Um, and so this video that we watched was pretty brutal and the zebra did exactly that. It tried to hide in broad daylight as these hyenas attacked it. Um, but in watching that, you get so much detail about the personality of a zebra and what it will do. So when the zebra is um, hurt on the boat with a broken leg, it is prey it, it, and, and the hyena is there and the animals are there. Who's threatening it? And um, how would it respond? How would Pi respond to the zebra? There are so many different lines of communication that all need to be written into the play. Right, yeah. And how does, I guess this is probably a question mainly for Fred, what, how, how much of what you do as a puppeteer is finely honed like clockwork? And then how much of it does, uh, how much is there room for um, uh, kind of impulse or kind of interpretation? Like how, how much of their, how much are you allowed to uh, have an acting performance as you're, you know, executing all this sort of technical stuff? Well, it's, uh, it's an interesting mix of the two. It's a mm. delicate balance. You have to have it, everything down like clockwork at the yeah. beginning so that you have a, a solid groundwork to play from if you don't know exactly what you need to be doing at every point as a character uh where you've got a hit on the on the stage and at what point within the the scene with your other puppeteers who are performing that character um everything starts to slightly fall apart but once you do have that down there is a huge amount of room for play and a huge amount of room to make different acting choices as that character um every scene every night um and it's an interesting mi- different mix of characteristics that come out of the tiger depending on which puppeteers are mm. performing it um because at the end of the day with three different people uh giving our own uh spin on the character even though we're all 
aiming for the same thing, we're all going to be coming at it with different, slightly different ideas. So the, the characteristics of the tiger that come across, uh, depending on who's uh, performing it, are very different. We had an, an old team and a young team uh, in, in London, <laughs> old tiger and a young tiger, ah. because there was, there, was, there was only about six or seven years difference between uh, the three in mm. one team and the three in the other. But uh, seeing it suddenly on stage, you saw that one tiger was slightly more cantankerous and grouchy and the other one was slightly more, you know, playful and, and vicious. And <laughs> it was, uh, it's a really fun dynamic to be able to play like that with three people on one character. And then again, particularly with the pie, against the pie, uh, because we spend so much time interacting with them uh, in the, the latter half of the story. Um, yeah. But yeah, there's there's a lot of a lot of acting play to be had. The physical action I always think is like the text. Mm -hmm. So they learn the text, and then how they deliver that text is different every night. Yeah, mm. yeah. And then in terms of uh, Finn, one of the things you do, you one of the co-directors of the of the movement of the puppetry. I wonder if you could just and Lolita started to alluded to this for uh, a minute, just about how you research. How much of what you do is research on, you know, real life animals? And then how much is, um, I don't know, sort of puppetry magic or tricks that make things seem alive? And like, what's the what's the mix there? <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, both of those things are huge. So the, mm -hmm. first of all, there's two tasks before we start even rehearsing, really. On this show and on most shows I work on, we have at least a week, and I keep thinking we should have more, of just mm -hmm. puppetry training, mm -hmm. where the puppeteers are just learning to move the objects around. Because otherwise, if we all start on day one, they won't be able to move, even walk as the characters or move around efficiently. Or So we just do a bit of puppetry technique. Of course, we talk about acting in that time too. But mainly what we're doing is getting them to a place where we can start, and I do mean start, talking to the puppets like we talk to actors. Heine, can you go over there, please? As opposed to Fred and Scarlett, can you work out how to get into Heine to go over there? then we do that working out in advance so there's this and that is then we get a week of solid of that and then throughout the rehearsal process we're constantly working on puppetry technique nothing to do with animals just and each because each puppet that we build requires different technique different muscle control different whatever to operate it to bring it to life and then alongside that we're doing a separate activity but of course they're very linked which is research into real animals and we will look into books youtube is hugely helpful the zoo Love going to the zoo, and we did that quite a bit with Warhorse, but because our, all of these animals are in the wild in such extreme situations, and YouTube is now so, you know, they capture everything, videos <laughs> tend to be more our friends. I wish we could see things more in the wild, but we do go for that. And then we will start to begin to understand why the animals make this noise, why the animals do this move, why the animal behaves that way to another animal. And then we will take that information, and then we'll go, in our show at this point, this animal is feeling under threat from this animal, for instance. What do we know about what this animal does when it feels under threat? And we'll go to our research and we'll go, well, it could do this or this or this. And we'll try that. And we'll go, that one looks really good. Okay, this one, we're going to try this one. This is exactly what it would do in the wild. And it does not read for anything on stage. So we won't do that. We'll mm. pick another one. And actually, in the, in the, in the circumstance that Elite is talking about, with the zebra, we had to do a third thing. Not puppetry technique, not animal research, but we had to just make it theatrical. So when the hyena, sorry, spoilers, but when the hyena is ripping off the zebra's leg, we have to have the zebra scream. Mm. Because if it just goes silent, which is what we learn they do in the real world, mm. the audience just think, are they 
stopped acting or they're, you know, the, the audience don't know enough about zebras to accept that specific reality. So in that specific moment, we go into a third territory, which is slightly fudging it to make the audience understand the theatrical story. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, you, as you as you mentioned, it's not just the physical work that you're doing. There's also vocalizing that uh, the puppeteers do at, at key moments yeah. that uh, how that's. That's uh, that seems a little bit like impression work. What what's that like, uh, Fred? Um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean that also takes uh, an incredible amount of time, and I don't think we're we're definitely not done with that work now. It's still an ever evolving uh, thing because we're constantly striving to make the same noises that these animals make, and our uh, vocal capacity is completely different. Our lungs are different sizes. Our vocal cords are, are built differently. Um, uh, it's a constant struggle and joy and game to uh, twist and contort our our voices into making the, the noises that they make. Um, the tiger in particular, because it's got to be so low at some points and so high and raspy at other points, we do a lot of uh, layering sounds. So one of us will make quite, you know, give give a bass to the, Say, say a, a roar, for example, one of us will give a, a bass, one of us will give a, uh, a sort of mid, and one of us will give more of a hiss um, mm. to sort of uh, stimulate what a tiger can do on its own. Um, but actually, with some of the animals, we did have to, similar with the, the movement uh, and the, the visual, we had to employ we had to make up what they the noises that they would make in certain situations like orangutans are very quiet beings but if we had a very quiet orangutan for for the duration of its time on stage it wouldn't have had the same impact or, or believability as, as it, it we needed it to and so we had to take sounds that we've heard them we we heard them make in in videos and, and documentaries and manufacture what those sounds meant for us in our world for that orangutan to be making real orangutan noises but to be making them more frequently or for different reasons um, than they would in the wild yeah you say yeah. Something? well we also talk a lot about a good example is the bleating of the goat the goat gets killed in the first scene the bleating of the goat is i mean it goats can make loads of noises but anywhere from sort of ah, to, ah, to, you know but what, what and they're just repeating that noise really but the goat goes from a state where it's playful to the state where it knows it's going to be killed so we were talking to a lot of puppeteers about that's the noise you have nah, nah. how do you make that noise go from nah, nah, to nah, ah, ah, distress and what can you do to that sound and where you place it in your body to take the accurate sound and give it an emotional quality changing emotional quality yeah yeah harder with um, the tiger yeah give them a raw spread your raw is amazing oh god he's uh, a bit ill <clears throat> okay i hope i don't make you ill by doing oh, this right oh. now <laughs> uh, That is, yeah, I, I wish the listeners could see how little your mouth actually moves while you're doing that. It's all in the back of your throat, <laughs> it seems like. That's, a, that's amazing. Um, 
Lolita, now that you've lived with the show for a while, you know, uh, you talked about the premiere in Sheffield in 2019 and it was in the West End and starting in 2021. What, how do you, what do you feel like, how do you feel like the theater version delivers the story differently from the previous versions that existed? What do you think rises to the fore in this version that uh, is different from other versions of the story? Gosh. Well, I always think that the book is a, a very personal experience. It's you set, sitting on your own, imagining the story. I, I reread the book recently um, after a, a couple of years and was struck by how um, uh, differently the story is told. Uh, you know, it sort of starts with uh, 80 pages of philosophy about religion with the older pie who has survived and is 35 and in Canada. And then the actual shipwreck is a almost incidental in the middle of the book happens and this boy is at sea and thinking about God and trying to survive. And then this last 20 pages at the end is the, um, the Japanese shipping officials coming to find out what happened and not getting any satisfying answers. So when I look at the book, I think, oh, how did I come up with this structure? <laughs> um, yeah. You know, so I don't know. I don't know the answer to that, really. And the film is so beautiful, but very literal mm. because we're mm. looking at the pictures. Uh, I guess you get immersed in a different way, but it's easy just to sort of stand outside it and experience it rather than engage with it. Um, so our version, I feel like it asks you to um, come with us as we investigate, as the Japanese shipping official, Mr. Okamoto, and um, I've changed the other shipping official to a Canadian diplomat in Mexico. And they both come to work out what happened to the ship that sank and uh, who is this boy? And so the detective trail, we ask you to come and find out with us and discover it with us. So I hope it's a more immediate experience, I think, where you're feeling and engaging and, you know, like when Fred's roaring there, you're sort of really uh, in it and feeling the fear of the animals and this boy against them, that it's a much more visceral and present experience. Mm, yeah. And what for uh, Fred and Finn, how has this experience, has it given you ideas for uh, what might come next for you in terms of the kind of stories you want to tell or the ways in which you might tell them using puppetry that you uh, maybe not exactly like the ways you've done before? Um, yeah, hugely. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, I've been doing puppetry for quite a long time and I guess I learned I learned on Warhorse that if you make the puppet the central character mm. and you put on it the re the requirements that you would place on an actor, suddenly the audience become much more interested. So if you treat it in a, whether it's for, for a kid's show, a family show or an adult show, if you treat it with the um, rigor that you would ask mm. an actor to put into a story, then they suddenly become much more exciting. And I think we've gone even further with that with Richard Parker and the mm. fact that the industry in in the uk at least turn around and 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 we weren't thinking about it but suddenly you know fred won best supporting actor with the other six puppeteers and we got nominated for choreography we won the design uh set and um uh puppetry and so the fact that the industry is really sitting up and taking notice felt really really honored honoring and and humbling actually and and of course you know enjoyably we're proud about it but it also made me think, oh my God, I, I, there is there is so much more, I think, that puppetry can offer. Um, and I think particularly what I realised is I've loved making, like probably the favourite show I've ever made, but um, 
it is also slightly within the format of these animal uh, puppet animal shows that we've made before, like Warhorse. I mean, I think, it's, I think Life of Pi is certainly the best one I've ever seen. Uh, but I'm really excited to be see what can be done with the human form in puppetry. Um, so I've, we've got a bunch of shows which I line up. I'm hoping Fred will join me on, but uh, mm. that, um, that explore the human form as uh, as a thing in puppetry. Yeah. Mm. Um, I think it's definitely opened my eyes to what can be possible and uh, opened my bri- my my brain to keep exploring uh, uh, how far we can push it uh, with with puppetry and object manipulation um, and lifting and mm. projection and stage magic and stagecraft. It's uh, the, the show as a whole has been a process of breaking glass ceilings in my, in my expectations of, mm. of theater and, and what can, can be shown. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm just really excited to to see what comes next and and keep making magic. <laughs> I feel very lucky to be able to do that as a job. Yeah, yeah. Well, we will look forward to seeing what is next from all three of you. But in the meantime, we here on Broadway uh, can enjoy Life of Pi, which is in previews now and uh, will be opening at the end of the month. That was Lolita Chakrabarty, Finn Caldwell, and Fred Davis, three of the artists behind Life of Pi, now on Broadway. If you enjoyed this conversation and others we've done here on StageCraft, I'd be so grateful if you took the time to rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps. Or tell a friend about StageCraft. Find past episodes and subscribe at all the pod purveyors, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and on the Broadway Podcast Network, which is a great place to find more theater for your ears. Until next episode, find me on Twitter at GCoxVariety. Thanks for listening, and see you at the theater. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network.